And hello again, everybody. It is time for the two-man game right here on Claves Online. I'm Bob Ramsey. That is my partner, Matt Rocchio. And we're glad you're with us to talk hoops the day after the national championship game. Rock, how you doing? Uh, I'm a Mizzou fan who watched KU uh, set a record with the greatest comeback ever in the second half to win another title. I'm, I'm doing just fantastic, Bob Ramsey. <laughs> yeah, you know... Um, the storylines, the rooting interests, and all those kinds of things, it always um, or it usually tends to taint how somebody feels about it. I know gamblers, some gamblers were pleased that uh, that the uh, uh, the K KU guard stepped out of bounds. And some and were extremely angry. Isn't that always how it goes? some were extremely angry. And it's funny how – and to me – and I don't want to alienate a lot of the audience. You do what you want with your money. But it's it shows me why you shouldn't gamble. A goofy kid for no reason, no reason, steps out of bounds with both feet while trying to run full speed. It was it was insane. And it made it made and lost people a lot of money. Oh yeah. I mean, there were a lot of little moments in there when you talk about just, you know. That, that kind of lost a lot of people money. I think another one that big one that people kind of have been complaining about and has been getting shared a lot is when Armando Baycott uh, hurt his ankle again and they slowed it down now. And you can see when he steps down and, and his ankle kind of um, bends a little bit, it's because, you know, the, the, the floor kind of, um, the, the paneling on the floor in that moment kind of broke and his foot kind of gets caught and stuck a little bit. And so people are now complaining about, you know, the arena where the game is being played because of there were a lot of slippery spots. Uh, um, not Baycott, I'm thinking uh, Manic. Manic in that, you know, the last moment slips on a spot that a lot of players had slipped on and it kind of seemed like it was a little bit. So there was a lot of kind of little intricacies that kind of came out of that game that would make it really hard for me to consistently bet on some NCAA championship games. Yeah, exactly right. Let's go through some of the storylines. First of all, the first half was all North Carolina, and nobody, especially KU, expected that. Yeah, I mean, they just they just came out and just completely manhandled them, and that just, I mean, KU hasn't, you know, blown the doors off teams, and, and, and I, I guess, you know, other, you know, the second half, obviously, against Miami. But, you know, they didn't really beat up on Providence the way you would expect them to after after what they, you know, did in the second half. And, they you know, Creighton gave them a game, you know, early in the tournament as well. Oh, yeah. So, it, 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 you weren't really – at no point had you seen a dominant Kansas. And so, with what UNC had able, been able to do and the, the streak they were on, obviously, after beating uh, Duke uh, on Saturday, it looked like they were just going to keep that momentum running. But uh, kind of in a, in a weird – uh, you know, coincidence of a conversation we've had on this podcast, but a team who played five guys almost 40 minutes per game, it finally, the very last game of the season, just kind of broke down. Yeah, it's it's crazy the way that works. So then I know most of us figured Kansas would put up a fight, but I don't know how many of us thought that Kansas could come all the way back. Uh what they you're, cl you're clearly not as broken inside as I am, Bob. <laughs> no, I'm not. And I tried to look at it analytically. One one guy I kind of focused on in the tournament um, was Christian Brown. And I think I may have mentioned last week how he was a spark um, in one of the in the Elite Eight game they played. And it wasn't quite as dramatic, but it happened again. To begin the second half, um 
the uh, uh, the Jayhawks go on a twenty to five run, twenty to five. Okay, to pull within a point. In that twenty to five run, Christian Brown scored ten of those points, and assisted on another bucket. So he, you could attribute twelve of the twenty points in that brief run to Christian Brown. He clearly became the heart and soul of that team when the chips are down that he could change a game. Yeah, how insane is it too that we're talking about the biggest second half comeback ever, and they essentially, you know, they essentially, you know, made the entire comeback in the first seven or eight minutes of yeah. the, the second half. They didn't even need the, the second half. From there, it was a little bit more back and forth. And then, obviously, there were some parts where they almost controlled it for a little bit before UNC made it close again. But it's just insane that the way they were able to score so quickly, so fast. I think it was a, I think there was a 9-0 run with inside yeah. that 20-5 to mm-hmm. run that took 55 seconds. And right. so just their ability to score that fast, and, and, and we saw that against Miami in the second half. It was just a torrent of points at one point. When they beat Providence, it was really on the back of one or two runs. And so it's it's crazy when we throw out these cliches when we talk basketball about, you know, it's a game of runs and things like that. But yeah. Kansas was a great example Proof. of that the entire season, and they were great. And, and the UNC game was a, a crazy example. When UNC can go on there, I think they went on a 15-0 run to really stake that 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 big lead or 13-0 run to, as part of that 15-point lead. And so just to have it erased that fast, it was amazing. Obviously, it was a bummer after seeing what Caleb Love was able to do, just come out just completely in a different world against Duke, playing downhill, pulling up and hitting shots, just the confidence he had to make that shot selection against Duke. And for just, you know, that's that's kind of how it is sometimes. You know, we, we've seen, you know, if you want an NBA comparison, a guy like James Harden, you know, just those the shots yeah. just weren't the exact same shot selection, just was not falling two nights later. And, you know, he came out with a little bit of a rough game, but, you know, Credit to UNC, the fact that they were able to run that deep and literally be in it till the last second. Like I said, playing so many guys, so many freaking minutes. Uh, Armando Baycott was just, I mean, double-double after double-double. He was an amazing player this entire tournament. I knew he was good, but I tell you what, the where I was with Baycott and Love before this tournament and where I am with him now, it's two completely different players. Yeah, let's talk about Baycott. Um on the radio side, we talked. I, I expressed my concerns about his ankle. Turned out to be true, but only at the very end of the game. He was dominant again on both ends of the floor. Um, I don't think he was jumping that well. I think he was clearly compromised, but still was an impact guy in the middle. Yeah, and it, it says a lot um, that so much of their team was, was based off kind of a hustle mentality. They, you know crashing yeah. the boards, getting second chance points, and they were still getting those. But I, I thought it was, you know, a classic kind of X's and O's thing. We've talked about this before. You saw a team that was really good at crashing the boards in UNC, and you saw a team that was really good in running transition in Kansas. And as soon as – and it's, you know, one of those things where as soon as that the scale started tipping in KU's favor – it was just a torrent because at that point the offensive rebounding and just the size advantage of UNC became completely moot, but the Kansas being able to get on run became the lifeblood of the entire game. And from there, it just, it just ran away from them. I want to mention this before I get to it. I'm kind of going, putting the, uh, going to the end of the game first, but when you look at the stats from the game, uh, both teams played good defense, that sort of thing. 
you see the low shooting percentages. But uh, North Carolina out-rebounded KU by 20. 55, 55 rebounds to 35. And they were like, they made, they made 18 free throws, I think out of 24 or 25 shots. Mm-hmm. Carolina was like, made 13 maybe, 13 out of 15 or 16, something like that. 13 or 16, the, I think. The point yeah. is, the point is, Carolina made more than Kansas took, out-rebounded them, not by a little, not by five, but by 20, and still lost the game. I mean, sometimes the numbers don't make any sense at all. No, and that's that's kind of one of the reasons I love basketball because you know there's there's not there's not you know one right way to win a basketball game. There's yeah. there's there's uncounted you know un, you know un, un, unnumbered ways to win a basketball game, and you saw that. And it's kind of crazy. Again, you can go so hard in one aspect of the game, but something as, as simple as transition and being able to score fast, the math will start tipping in your favor because you're getting the points per possession slowly starts tipping in your favor. It, it, it's dumb, and I, and I hate to reduce it to a math equation, but, I mean, this is why this is why basketball has changed the way it has because if you score more points you know, per minute than the other team, it eventually you're eventually going to win a lot more games than the other teams you're beating, you know, in that stat. And that's what we saw, I think, across a 40-minute game uh, on, on Monday night. Let's talk about a couple of sidebar kind of things. Um, first, Brady Manick, who I've been watching him, and man, I, I, he's a dagger guy, and I get it, and watched him the whole tournament, and remarkable. But the other thing that was remarkable to me, how he has a disdain for playing defense, and to the point I, my high school son was watching with me on Saturday, and I go, oh, no. he won't play at all. He won't play any defense. But then he'd come back and hit a dagger three and get a little short drive and a 10-footer. Okay, so you live with it. So then in the championship game, it seemed like it was more of the same in the first half, but Carolina was rolling, so so what? But then it appeared that he started – I'm not going to say he played great defense, but he had like three block shots, got a few more rebounds, and that sort of thing. But the story for him was – he was clearly playing concussed. Yes. There's he I mean got, there's he, there's no doubt about that. He took three headshots. One of them, the commentators, and maybe the director didn't see it. Um, the first one was the elbow to the forehead, which clearly was the, the big blow. Then the in-between one that a lot of people didn't notice, but I was watching him because of my fascination that a guy at that level can be a star and not play any defense. And and so he caught one. He caught um, like a forearm right on the chin that snapped his head back. And then a little later in the game, he took a forearm hard to the face. And then the whole rest of the night, you could see he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but he wouldn't come out of the game. And it tells me, well, at Carolina, they, they had to have him. And he he hung in there. I I hope they're taking a look at him today. I'm sure they are. We may never know the story, but he, that guy was a warrior. However, continuing that story. So McCormick comes back in the game while Baycott's still in there for Carolina. We're down in the last 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kansas runs a kind of a high, low screen. Um, 
I forgot who the other big for Kansas was. I don't think it was Hightower. But anyway, Manic was on the secondary guy. They hit that screen spot in the paint, and they switched. Carolina switched with Baycott going low, and lo and behold, Manic was on him. They fed McCormick the ball, scores easily. Okay, they go down, they don't score. Uh, Baycott fouls out of the game. They don't have another big to put in, at least one they had confidence in. So Manic had to guard McCormick. What does KU do? I mean, they smelled blood. Passed immediately into the post. He turns around and scores. Ball game. Or so we thought, except for that last stuff at the end. Now we get to the end. Guy steps on the sideline, giving North Carolina, who was dead, dead. Oh, Game's yeah. over. I mean, their 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 backup comes in and he gets el- he gets elbowed in the stomach and he pukes on live television. I mean, that's just that. I mean, that's hard. The game is over. Yet Kansas says, no, 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 no. It's a national championship game. We want you to have the last shot. <laughs> so interesting. So if you remember that the, the, it was it, it was a uh, triggered in from the uh, left sideline, right in front mm-hmm. of Hubert Davis. Okay, and they threw it into uh, Love. But anyway, they were set up on the four corners of the lane, the two elbows and the two blocks. It appeared the play was for Manic to go down and cut off that left block and head to the right corner. Mm-hmm. But he tripped, and you alluded to that. You mentioned it earlier. He tripped, slipped, whatever. But the poor guy was so messed up in the head. I don't. Everybody's watching the ball. I had this fascination with this guy. I kept my eye on, he was, and I'm not trying to make fun of him, but he was flopping around like he was in the bottom of a bass boat. Oh my I gosh. Mean, really? He couldn't, get, he couldn't, he came all the way across the lane kind of on his hands oh, and knees God. and was flopping around and he turned, he never got to the corner and he never did regain his feet. Yeah. You hate that. I, I, I didn't notice that at all. That's, that's, was, that's a really good, yeah. If you go I didn't back notice and that look, at all. That's ugly. If you go back and look now, I don't know if he was the first choice, but if he's able to sprint cleanly to the corner and turn, love theoretically that would have been an option for him, and would have been the option. But uh, it was it was it was in the moment sort of comical if he didn't know the circumstances that made it scary and ugly. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And, and to that point, there's I wanted to ask you about this because you know you you called you know the Maui Invitationals and things like that. You know these are these are these are you know wood floors that get put together in a hotel. Uh, you know, ballroom and things Thank like you, that. Yeah. And, and, and so, do you when you saw the slowdown video of Baycott's injury, and you saw the way that the, the, the floor the floor moved like that? There were some people out there who were saying, "Listen, that's how that's how wood paneling floor works all over the place. Even if it's a set gym, you can see that happen." I called BS on that, but I have not sat courtside and watched as many games as, as you have on wood paneling floors all across America and all di- across different venues. What were your thought when you saw that slowed down video of the Baycott injury? Either something in the floor broke and somebody wasn't the, in the uh, superstructure underneath. Um, those floors do have a give. If you've ever been on a basketball court that with the woods put right down on the concrete, you know the difference. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to have give. It's healthier. It's better for your knees yeah. and ankles and back. But it's not supposed to do what that did. Um, the angle was low. I wonder if there's an angle up 
or maybe at a side where you can see if the floor actually separated. It sure looked like it did. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to do that. Yeah, I think I think I think Gottlieb was one of the people saying, "Listen, I, I've seen a lot of floors, and you know, sometimes wood paneling happens like that." I, I, I was like, "Listen, I've seen a lot of injuries too, and from slippery spots. I don't think I've ever seen the, the the wood paneling move like that, unless we're just talking about you know some some video of some poor eighth grader at you know some you know you know YMCA gym, you know that 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 has his knee blown out because of something like that. It was insane that that happens. Again, I think that." One of the least talked about things because we get so many great games and the tournament's always so fun is they were worried about the local flavor. You know, they were worried about too many, you know, teams getting uh, too much of a local boost from, you know, playing in gyms that they, that were too close to their home gym. So they, they flip everyone up and they throw them in all these different kind of venues and they're using the Superdome, which I don't know why the hell you'd pay to sit you know, 500 feet away from a basketball court to watch the game live anyway. That's your personal decision, but I'm just saying, I just think that there's a lot of little decisions like that that you can never go back from because the larger venues means more money, and as soon as you hit one revenue point, you're never going to go backwards from it. So there's nothing to do about it. Fans. There's nothing to do about it, but it's just, I, I, it's just one of the little things that every year we don't talk about it because the games are still fun, but man, something's missing. And even if it is, you know, even if you don't like Villanova playing in front of, you know, a halfway home crowd in Philadelphia, I just think we've, that was well worth the trade off of, of those teams maybe getting a little bit of a boost. So that just sucks. And I think that now getting stuck in these football stadiums and stuff like that is just, is a fallout because of it. And I'm, again, I'm shouting into the void because they're never going to go back from 70,000 people. That's just that that's what it is now. And that's what they're always going to shoot for. The folks in these domes, they're professionals. And I'm not going to suggest that somebody missed you know, you take these big squares of wood. and But it's a wider know. margin of error when it's not something that's consistently there and it's not built for the venue and it's not something that they do, you know, 82 games a season if we were talking yeah. about going to an NBA venue or 30-something times a season if we're talking about the college venues. They just don't have the same experience, and so there's the, the chances that you have something like this happen are higher. I mean, hell, look at what happened, you know, what was that? Um, six or seven years ago with Russ Smith in Louisville, that's a different situation. That was because of a raised floor, and then he stepped, and because right. of the injury, he gets moved off it, and he gets a compound fracture. But again, we're talking about a football stadium where these are the situations where we have to do it with the raised floor, and then you have a bad injury because of it. But again, it's unavoidable, but I just I hope that when these things happen, it just leads to better quality down the road, because again, if it's going to be in the Louisiana Superdome, um, and we're going to do it because of 70,000 fans, we're going to do it because of the money, well, then the, a lot of that money needs to go to making sure nothing like that happens on the floor again. Well, here's the other thing that could have added to the issue. Instead of a normal floor, you know, this thick or whatever it is with cushion, mm-hmm. uh, that was a raised floor. Yeah. And so now you're – it looked like at least three feet high, so you know it's framed underneath – did something come loose mm-hmm. or was it not installed all? It's just, I think at the very least, it's got to be inspected better Yeah, to prevent and those kind of things. I, I just couldn't believe that there were people actually saying that that wasn't a problem. It was a huge issue and hopefully we don't run it anyway. But, you know, congratulations to Kansas. Obviously, you know, another sidebar, congratulations to, you know, three Missouri kids in a, in a, uh, a, KC, a KC, or I guess three Missouri kids, one of them being a, a I guess, Overland Park 
Kansas City kid winning the championship, uh, Dwan Harris, Baji, and Braun. Uh, Brown, but then also Caleb Love, another Missouri kid playing. So, I mean, to have four, three Missouri kids and, and, you know, fourth from the area, including, you know, an Overland Park, Kansas kid, that was just incredible. You know, I'm, I'm not going to take the Missouri outlook of, man, if they could just close the borders with that kind of talent because who cares? It's not realistic. But just impressive what, you know, these – you know, impressive what the local um, crop is able to do. And obviously congratulations to the guys on Kansas for getting themselves a ring. Yeah, you know, but as a as a a guy with a you know a dog in the fight, um, I did during the tournament wonder what what would what would my life be like if Love and Liddell had stayed at St. Louis, just like Mizzou oh. fans, I'm sure, were saying, what if those guys stayed and went to Mizzou? So yeah, the, I think that I think that's. Um, I try not to get caught in it. Then you... You're not going to get every player, no. but you sure would like to. And to that point, I, as we kind of transfer here to a little bit of slew talk, Javante Perkins did a, a sit-down interview, uh, I believe it was with KMOV, and he mentioned that. He's like, hey, imagine yes. – and, and, he, and, he, and he, that was one of his big things. He said, imagine if these guys stayed here. Imagine what we could do. I stayed here. I'm loving it. I, you know, I want more guys from St. Louis to understand this is a great place to stay. This is a great place to play basketball. And so I love that Javante Perkins going into his last year. Listen, that recruiting pitch, if it hits, isn't going to yeah. affect his time at SLU. And so I love the way that, that, that he said that and obviously very, really excited for him uh, looking forward to the season. And, heck, we're not even being homers on that one, Rammer. It seems like there's a lot of people in the college basketball world who are pretty excited about Javante Perkins coming back next year. Three organizations uh, today put out, and they and they did it not really tongue-in-cheek, but just to protect themselves to say, comically to say the way too early preseason top 25. Um, and I think John Rothstein, who we both love, mm-hmm. um, I think did top 45. Anyway. Because he's a maniac. In, in all Right. In all three, the Bills were either 25th or 26th, which that's not, that's not I, bad. Uh, I didn't realize that SLU had sort of, uh, you know, captured the 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 you know uh, the look you know the look from the national pundits that's that say hey these guys got some play. and so what it tells me is they really did realize how important Javante Perkins was and how good of a player Javante was and that losing him. And then the last day of the day of the year, when you're trying to make an NIT run, you lose arguably the best point guard in the country. Statistically, if you by assist, yes. And, and it tells me that, that the pundits, the guys who cover it are paying attention to the little guy. And I like that. Yeah. And I think it also says that when we were, you know, trying to say, you know, and, and talk about the bright side and, and talk about a 20-win slew season, how impressive that really was and how I think everything they did this year goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that, yeah, teams think obviously think highly of Javante Perkins, but if slew doesn't play the way they do consistently in this 20-win season and show that there's guys on the bench and there's guys growing who are going to augment him, and, and, and the best one being Yuri Collins and other St. Louis kid who had a huge year becoming uh, finally with the tournament ending the number one assist man in college basketball by both uh, total numbers and by uh, the, the per game numbers. So, yeah, you have the leading assist man in college basketball. You have Javante Perkins coming back and you have a roster that without their best player was still able to win 20 plus games. Things are looking up for St. Louis and, and the national people are, uh, are, are taking note. 
you know, you mentioned Yuri Collins. I forgot what his n- number ended up being, 257, 261, something like that with the assists. But I started – and I had tweeted this out that – 267. 267. And his assists per game, 7.9. Yeah, we're going to call it eight. Um, the uh, I'm, I'm the play-by-play guy. I can, we're going to call it eight, yeah, yeah, fair. It's, it's akin to poetic license, but anyway um, – with Perkins back, you still have Jimerson. Sincere Parker joins. And the Billikens have several scholarships available because of losing players in the transfer portal. Francis Okoro is going to score a dozen to 15. Who knows what hit? I think the sky's the limit for Franco. Yeah. And, and, you know, watching the whole tournament, the way he was playing in the last month to six weeks of the season, he can play with anybody in the country now. Not saying he's better than anybody else. Saying he can play with them. Um, I'm telling you, Yuri's going to crack 300 assists next year. It's going to be. It's going to be. Well, he only needs 33 more. Yeah, I mean, and, and you he's think, not going to get 33 assists to Perkins. Yeah, there's. Yeah, and, and I mean, him, him, and Gibson are are, are only going to get. I mean, they're. They, I mean, we're going to see some ridiculous, like behind, like eyes in the back of the head. No look, like I, I guarantee you, we're gonna catch it. We're we're gonna see multiple times next season where Gibson like catches a ball, well, like while he's already looking at the rim. Like it's gonna be something like insane, like that. Like they're gonna have that level of yeah. of, two, uh, of you know, excuse me when I say the cliche, the two man of two man game, and then you add in Javante just being, you know, just the best player on the floor every night, and it's hard to you know to see why, hard not to see why they they uh, have put him in these top twenty five, then. When you talk about the open spots on the roster, you know we're at the point now where that's still a positive. You know more guys are putting their names in the transfer portal. Um, you know what's uh, it up to now? It's twelve hundred. Twelve hundred, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was not. It was it was nine hundred. A think, week uh, ago, about, about a week ago. So yeah, three hundred players hit the portal. Obviously, the three play. Uh, the three big names from uh, St. Peter's are 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 are, are those. Uh, uh, are three of those 300. Uh, you got a big center from Colorado or Colorado State, I want to say, who, who apparently slew and um, Kansas Missouri, State. Or talking, think, Kansas, right? State, Kansas State, sorry, Kansas State, my bad. Um, and, and the young man, the, oh, yeah. the, the St. Charles kid that's de- decommitted from Butler Yep. Um, as they change coaches, uh, Turnbull is his yeah, name. Yeah, kind of Turnbull. And, yeah, I saw that earlier today. I don't know. I don't know what contact's been made. I don't know what these kids' interests are. But I know the Billikens are out working it and working it and working it. So um, there are opportunities there to really fill those holes, which has and it's become college basketball free agency. That's what it is. And again, we and we still don't know about you know whether or not Jordan Nesbitt's going to be on this team next year. Uh, right. You know, right. he, he he made his announcement. Um, I believe he pulled down. The announcement from a couple of the social medias uh, within about 24, 48 hours, and I don't think they're back up. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what that decision is. Just a lot of positivity around St. Louis, and uh, we'll keep people updated as as they uh, fill in those roster spots over the summer going into the fall. I think we'll see something. Um, I think we'll see some some uh, roster additions within five weeks. All right, maybe as soon as tomorrow. And but way before Memorial Day, I really believe that. Absolutely, okay. I think there's wait. always a chance to get Can't somebody wait. late, late. Yeah, 
that'll be it'll be interesting to see. You know, if it, if we're talking about that again, I think we were talking about that uh, this past year before. You know, everything happened to Javante when it was like August, and they were like, you know, listen, is there is there one more like move that they might make here late that we're not talking about yet? And um, they obviously obviously things got thrown up, but I think I think you're right with, with how many spots they have available. And the kind of team that they could build, getting a backup center in here to work behind Franco, getting another point guard in here to work behind Yuri, they could really be setting themselves up to just kind of you know you know play with the play with the toys the, the you know the toys in the chest, if you will. One more thing before we get to the NBA, and one of the other things I noticed in the tournament is how big everybody is, mm-hmm. and the Billikens for their league. They were, they were okay. They were fine as far as athleticism and that sort of thing. But when you looked at these tournament teams and you had three players six foot and under, it's, it's going to be hard to, to win that way. And that's why adding someone like Kellen Thames, who by the time he's done growing, could be a 6'8 guy with point guard skills, that's the kind of athleticism and length that you're seeing on every position on the floor at the highest levels of college basketball, and that's where you got to go, I think. Also, other other big takeaway from the tournament, this is the fourth champion in a row that is not doing this with freshmen, that is doing this with upperclassmen in yeah. a solid system. Kansas, I know it's surprising to say that, but, I mean, Agbaji and these guys have been building over the years. Yep. Baylor before that, Virginia before the pandemic, and even Villanova, that, that, that the second of the, the Villanova teams was, was fairly veteran. And so I wonder how much it's going to matter, and I think it's going to matter over the next couple tournaments. We're going to see – more, I think, champions over the next two or three years that are upperclassmen heavy because of obviously all the extra roster time and things like that. Having veterans and having upperclassmen, maybe not for a long period of time, but definitely over the next three years, as it has been for the last couple, is going to be a good thing and, and should kind of be a market, you know, a mark for success when maybe previously in, in college basketball people wanted to knock teams like that. But it's undoubtedly now something in your favor when you've got grown men, you know, going against 18 and 19 year olds. And there's no question it should benefit St. Louis University. As Javante comes back for his sixth year, you know, he missed this last one completely, but a sixth year of eligibility. And, you know, guys like Jimerson and Collins have a chance to play five and six years both. And then the COVID, um, you know, the extra COVID year, that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And so some of the teams that had their young players come in on the COVID, they'll get that benefit longer than other teams. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch too. Exactly. So let's switch to the pros. The NBA, man, you know, we've been talking about them for a couple of months now. And I'm actually, I had no rooting interest at all and still don't, except that I'm a little bit of a sap and I feel bad for Cleveland. They're just sinking like us. They can't score. Rock, they can't yeah. score. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, when they, you know, they lost Jared Allen and the defense started showing some cracks. And then they lost Evan Mobley and that consistent scoring valve, it was easy buckets in the pick and roll just completely dried up because, you know, Darius Garland, the point guard for, for Cleveland, is actually playing really well. And he's yeah. still playing well down the stretch. It's just that when you lose two of your best players, and maybe your singular best player. Some people would argue Garland's better, but I would argue Mobley is the best player on the on the Cavs. Things are going to dry up, it, it, but it, it's crazy how much the East changed. We talked about it at the All Star break. You know, we, the Bulls and the Heat were at the very top. 
Uh, the Raptors were, were, were looked like they were going to make a charge. They kind of, you know, stuck in yeah. like 500. The Bulls fell down a bunch. Lonzo Ball is going to be out for the rest of the season, by the way. That came out earlier today. The Heat, you know, stayed the cream of the crop. The Celtics made a huge jump. Uh, the Nets never made the jump that we, we that we thought they were going to make. They're, they they have um, clinched the 10th spot, so they're going to be playing in the in the uh, they're going to be playing in the play-in games. But it's just kind of insane how these last couple weeks have, have boiled down to, and it's crazy that there's still a lot of things that could change. Remember, the way these yes. things break out, especially in the West, no one wants to be the four seed in the West right now because that puts you on the same side of the bracket as the Phoenix Suns. And so there's now this, this weird kind of jockeying for position in, in, with seeding in the West as well where there's a lot of questions. Are the Lakers even going to make the play-in game? No, they're not, first of all. Um, By the way, is, I was, that was going to be my question to you. Are the Lakers going to – they're not going to make the playoffs, are they? No. I mean, LeBron, LeBron's not playing tonight. Um, and, I th- against, again, and that's against the Suns. Maybe they're thinking, you know, we only have, uh, you know, three or four games left. Uh, they have four games left. Um, you know, we're only going to have three games left after the Suns game. Maybe we, we hold LeBron to try to win these ones, you know, that we can actually win. But, you know, he's not going to play tonight against the Suns. So – they're, they might already be kind of surrendering and saying it's not worth it. Yeah, and, you know, I read a story today they're going to fire Frank Vogel, which is a joke. Um, you, you can't you can't blame the guy for never having a healthy healthy team. I mean, Anthony Davis even said we would have been better if the team was healthy, but, you know, fire the coach because that's, that's what you do when you're the Lakers and you have a bad year. Yeah, but that was the thing. I remember our very first two-man game show talking NBA. You were kind of down on the Lakers, and I go – if they stay healthy, they could make it fun, and they've not been healthy all year. Yeah, and they've made the it whole extremely, year. And they've made it extremely depressing. Um, it's and but, some stories coming out. Gosh, help me that instead of Westbrook, they could have made a move for another scorer. Oh, it came out today. I, I apologize, but LeBron was the one that said no. I want Westbrook instead, and uh, and you know. What are you going to do? He's your star player. He's got all the influence. You can't fire him, but to fire a coach or front office people for doing what he wants, it's a, uh, it's an ugly mix. Yeah, uh, Demar Derozan. Um, yeah, Derozan. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's gone? Who's obviously you know taken his his kind of career revitalization from San Antonio. And gotten even better this year with Chicago. And, heck, he would have fit perfectly because much like Russell Westbrook, uh, he might not be the best three-point shooter, but he loves taking shots from the mid-range. The big difference there is that DeMar DeRozan 6'7", makes his shots and then plays defense, uh, <laughs> which Russell Westbrook doesn't do. Um, subtleties, subtleties. Yeah, just like slight little you know, you know, things about how basketball works. Um, <laughs> so it, it's it's crazy that the Lakers have done that, but when, like I said, they're never able to get healthy, so I'm not surprised. But it does kind of look like yeah. they're going to surrender, uh, which kind of sucks because it, there's a 12-game slate uh, for the NBA this afternoon. In fact, uh, three of them are in action right now, the 76ers and the Pacers, the unfortunate Cavaliers and the Magic, and then the Hawks and the Raptors are already in action. So 12-game slate after the NCAA championship last night, and it closes out on NBA TV, Lakers-Phoenix Suns, prime time. No LeBron, and they're 16 games below 500. So kind of a want-want end there for the Lakers, um, which sucks, though, because everything around this season has been one of the most fun NBA seasons ever. Again, the, the competition in the in the East has been amazing. But then let's talk about how 
if you if you look at the conversation right now going on in NBA circles, no one can figure out who the rookie of the year is. No one can figure out who the defensive player of the year is. No one can figure out who the MVP is. No one can figure out who the second best team in the league after the Suns is. And so there's there's these there's these huge question marks mm. in a league where we usually don't get those kind of question marks. And while a lot of the debate around MVP and stuff can be dumb, the fact that we're we're sitting here and we're saying you have Giannis and you have Embiid and you have uh, Jokic and you have Devin Booker. And there's all these different ways you can come at the argument. And the same thing with the rookie of the year. Some people want Cade Cunningham. Some people want Evan Mobley. Um, some people want Scotty Barnes from the Toronto Raptors. There's just so much amazing stuff happening in the NBA. I would hate to get bogged down in the Lakers sucking. Um, because <laughs> well, Let's it, go. I've yeah, got the solution. Thank you. I've got the solution for Lakers fans. Are you ready? Don't watch another game this year, and you won't have to in another week or so. Don't watch another game this year and watch Winning Time on HBO. Yes, that that is incredible. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But the other, the other, but the, there's a Los Angeles team that we haven't talked about enough that we should have, and that is the Clippers. Because last night, Paul George came, or two, two nights ago, last night, two nights ago, Paul George came back from his injury and he dropped 30 points immediately. Tyron Lue has been keeping that team together with duct tape and, and chicken wire, and, he, and he's been winning games. He has them solidly in the eighth spot, so they're in the play on games, but they're on the better better side of it in the eighth spot, and they're, yeah. they're clinched right there. He's been keeping that stuff together. And so now, with a healthy Paul George, essentially what the Clippers get to do here over the next couple games is audition themselves for whether Kawhi Leonard wants to give a shit, which is – Insane that we would. Fra- it's insane that that's a thing. But if Kawhi Leonard decides that, hey, Paul George is coming back, and this team looks like they could do something, he'll come off the bench after not playing a single game in the regular season, and the rest of the NBA will its teeth will start chattering. Because you really a, think that's a possibility. I absolutely think it's a possibility. Because also, it, it would be the greatest Kawhi Leonard move ever. He's won two championships, and he's been load managing since he was like 26 years old. It, it's, it would be the ultimate load management move if he literally didn't play a single regular season game, stepped onto the floor, into the play-in game of the playoffs, and then because Dominates. him and Paul George are healthy, they just start ripping shit. I mean, they just start <laughs> destroying teams. And it, 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 it's not inconceivable because we've seen – Kawhi Leonard do it yeah. whenever he comes on the court. Uh, the the rationale is that he's healthy now, but if they weren't going to be a winning team, why would the why would he risk his career going forward? But he can say, "Screw it, we can win with this team and go." So it's going to be really interesting to see what the Clippers do over these next few games. They're one of the few teams uh, not in action tonight. You're going to be able to watch them tomorrow night against Phoenix. It's going to be on ESPN. It's going to be one of the best games of these last few um, regular season day- days of the NBA regular season because Phoenix, obviously, you know, I, th- I think you know they don't want to get to 65 for some dumb reason, but I think they're going to get to 65. I don't think they're going to pick their foot off the pedal because uh, I think Monty understands that them playing well into the going to the playoffs is going to be a, a big thing, especially when they're going to have the longer layoff because of the play-in games. So they're not going to bullshit that game. And Paul George is literally going to be trying to put on a show for Kawhi Leonard to come out and play in the playoffs. So we haven't talked nearly enough about the Clippers, and I have a good feeling that we're going to go from talking almost nothing about them to talking about them ruining some people's days in the West. And that's, I mean, that's a fantastic storyline that I didn't see coming, but I'm so happy it's here. Final thing for me, is Golden State ever going to have their main three guys 100% healthy? 
no. Okay. And, and I mean, that's just, I, I, there, I mean, it's, this is the least confident I've ever been about a 50 win NBA team. Yeah. It's, I've never, I've never been this disappointed in a 50 win NBA team. It, it's kind of insane, you know, except, you know, obviously injuries have a big part of it. You know, the Celtics are probably going to get to 50 wins and without Robert Williams, the third, I'm not very high on them, but this is, we're talking about a team with three hall of famers, but none of them have been healthy all year. Clay's finally starting to look good. You know, he, he looked fantastic against the jazz over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, can Steph look a hundred percent and without, you know, Steph makes Draymond, a, a key cog on the offense. He'll always be the most important player on that defense, but he's what makes Draymond's offensive minutes useful. And Jordan right. Poole's doing Jordan Poole can do a good job of that, but he just can't do the Stephen Curry level to it. So they just lose so much without Curry being out there on offense. And so, yeah, the, the, the Golden State Warriors are, are looking kind of like a, a good option to maybe get bumped out in the first round. Um, right now they're sitting in the three seeds. So after the play in game, um, They'd be playing the uh, sixth seed, so that right now is the Utah Jazz. So, I mean, they just beat the crap out of them in a regular season game, and I'm not very high on the Jazz as a playoff team, so maybe the Warriors can get through one, maybe Carey can come back in the second round a little bit healthier, and maybe they can get something going. But, I mean, that's a lot of maybes when we're talking about, you know, being on the same side potentially of the bracket as the Phoenix Suns. I only can watch one game tonight. What is it? Oh, you only watch one game? Oh, it's Memphis-Utah. That's yeah, absolutely what absolutely it's Memphis, Utah, um, because, again, I, I want to see how Jaron Jackson Jr. and Steven Adams play against another team with a big. And we talked about that with Rob Fisher. Can those two big men be kind of an X factor against other teams? Specifically, can they be the X factor against a Suns team that has DeAndre Ayton? I think DeAndre Ayton is, is a better version of Rudy Gobert. He might not be the defensive stopper he is, but his ability on both sides of the floor is just better than what 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 what. Gobert is able to bring, so I think that'll be a great example. And then the other, and then here's something I want you to watch. I'm so glad you asked me that. Here's something I want you to watch. This is a crazy stat that hit NBA Twitter the other day. That is insane. Donovan Mitchell averages two passes per game to Rudy Gobert. What? Yes, that that is a real thing. He he averages two passes per game to Rudy Gobert. What is going on with that? Well, the the one part is uh, he's not a, he's not a, he's not a, Rudy Gobert is not an offense a good offensive player, and so they don't put the ball in his hands very often. Not even another a decoy. <laughs> yeah, the second thing is I think is kind of funny is that everything coming out of the Utah Jazz locker room says that those two players do not get along very well. Oh. And, and, and so I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, but yeah, it's it's insane. Um, I can't remember what the stat was, but there there are numbers out there where they're like. There are – oh, yeah, Trey Young has more assists to Clint Capella this year than Donovan Mitchell has passes to Rudy Gobert. <laughs> so I want, you to, I want you to watch this Grizzlies-Jazz game and just look for moments where you're like, why did he not pass to Gobert there? And maybe even try to pick out the two times he actually passes to That's his hilarious. big man. It's insane. And, and it's, I think it's a microcosm of a broken Jazz team. That's why I don't think they're going to do much in the playoffs. Wow. 
There's a good inside look. I love it. Thank you. Hey, thank you, hey, thank you, thank you to the to the NBA uh, blogger who's who's been retweet whose stat has been co-opted by ninety thousand people to the point where we've lost who the original was. Whoever you are, incredible job finding that stat. It's even better than the one we went through the other week when we talked about the Lakers never putting up LeBron on a losing graphic. It's even better than that one. I love that stat so much. Two passes per game from the best player to arguably the second best player on the team. Insane. Incredible. Well, Matt, great job tonight, and uh, we'll talk again at the end of the week as we'll start to get ready for the for postseason, and uh, obviously we'll try to keep you up, up to date on college basketball news as well. Rock, have a great night. You too, Raymer. That's Matt Rockio. I'm Bob Ramsey. This is the two-man game on Claves Online. St. Louis Acura is the only Acura dealer in the nation to win the Precision Team Award for 30 years. How do we do it? by making you, our customers, our number one priority. As others increase their fees and take advantage of limited inventory, we keep our prices low because we remain committed to becoming better than ever and treating you as we want to be treated. We want you coming back and sending your friends and family to a veteran-owned, family-based business you can trust. St. Louis Acura, better than ever for you.